0: In John chapter twelve this morning John chapter twelve we will begin reading in verse twenty seven, John twelve in verse twenty seven, and then we will continue reading down to verse thirty three. John, tw- uh, John twelve in verse twenty seven and we will read down to verse thirty three. John twelve twenty seven Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I into this but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of the world, of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. John 12 and verse 27 opens up with, Now is my soul troubled. These words follow our Lord's conversation with the Greeks who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Remember that the Greeks had been raised with the idea of worshiping false gods, a multitude of idols. They had been converted to Judaism and had learned of the one true and living God and his laws, including uh, their need to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. While in Jerusalem they had heard of the Lord Jesus Christ, they heard that he claimed to be the resurrection and the life, They heard that he was the one who came in the name of the Lord. They heard of him cleansing the temple and declaring that temple to be his father's house. These things rose up in their hearts and they sought to see Jesus face to face. In their meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ, he told them that the hour of his crucifixion had come. He also they also heard him speak of the true God and that he would change their lives from the inside out. Our Lord's words to them ended in verse 26 where he taught that those who truly followed God wanted to be with him, wanted to serve him and were those who waited for the honor of that comes from God alone. After. Announcing the hour of his death was imminent. Our Lord spoke the words in John 12 in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. Again we see. That John is not afraid to reveal. That the Lord Jesus Christ is not only God. But he is fully man. And the words spoken in John 12 and verse 27 are spoken through the manhood and deity of of the Lord Jesus Christ combined together. Now is my soul troubled. Now is my soul stirred within me. Now my soul is agitated. My soul is disquieted, unpeaceful. And my soul is anxious. And distressed. This statement marks the beginning of the terror that came in our Lord's soul in relation to his death. His death was coming. And his soul was moved by the very depth, in the very depths regarding the horror of that coming hour. Our Lord had announced his impending death on several other occasions. You remember when we covered these. But those announcements were made when his hour was not yet come. Remember? But this announcement is made with the full knowledge that his death is at hand. All men die, brethren. All men die. It is normal for men to die. But what Jesus Christ is troubled about, what is stirring in his soul is the kind of death that he is going to suffer. His death would be a death of one who was made a curse under the law of God so that he was cursed being hung on a tree. His death would be the one where he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. His death would be a death where he would be separated from his father. For the first time in all of eternity, words coming out of the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ would be, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Separated from the father, because he who knew no sin became sin, and when in becoming sin became a curse under the judgment of God. That's the kind of death that he's facing. And that's what is troubling his soul he would come under the judgment of his father suffering the wrath of his father's just justice the just dying for the unjust as the justice of almighty god would fall upon the son of god at calvary it is this he feared it is this that made his soul troubled The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Hebrews spoke of this time. In Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 we read concerning our Lord Jesus Christ who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. This is what is going on in our Lord's life right now. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7. Strong feelings rising up to God because there is a fear of what he is facing. The kind of death that he is going to face. Now is my my soul troubled, he says. But he doesn't end there. He goes on to say in verse 27... Now is my, tro- my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? Notice carefully that our Lord does not pray that his Father deliver him out of the death he has chosen to suffer, but that his Father deliver him from the death that he has chosen to suffer. Every word of God is critical and in this case it is especially critical Our Lord, brethren, is not having second thoughts concerning his death. He is not questioning the wisdom of God or the will of God in making this statement. He was fully committed to his father's will in the offering up of himself as a perfect sacrifice on behalf of sinners. This is evident in the next statements that he's going to make. And his next statement, he says, but for this cause... Came I unto this hour. My soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, uh, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. It is evident from what the words of Christ uh, is saying here. That he's not asking to be delivered from the death that he is facing. Or out of the death he is facing. But to be delivered from it. In eternity, when there was nothing but God before the heavens and the earth, our Lord had made an everlasting covenant with his Father to stand in the place of sinners, to be their substitute, to bear their sin, to suffer the judgment due to their sins, and to pay the penalty owed for their sins. That covenant, that everlasting covenant made between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in the eternities. That covenant is sure and certain and steadfast. Nothing, nothing would stop our Lord Jesus Christ from accomplishing his commitment to his Father that he would stand as a substitute for sinners at Calvary's cross. Matthew gives us some light on that. Matthew 26 and verse 53 and 54. Our Lord is speaking. Matthew 26, 53. Our Lord says, Thinkest thou that I cannot beseech my Father, and He shall even now send me more than twelve legions of angels? Even now, at this, at this moment before the cross... At this moment before I face my death, that even now He would send 12 legions of angels to deliver me? Do you not think I could just ask and it would happen? But what are the next words that are coming out of the mouth of our Lord? Matthew twenty-six, fifty-four. How then shall the Scripture be fulfilled? That thus it must be so. It must be. You see, brethren, our Lord has determined in His soul of souls... To stand in the sinner's place. That determination was made in eternity past. In an everlasting covenant between him and his father. With the spirit of God. And there was this covenant made. And he is now on earth. And he's only a few days away from Calvary. And the fear or the terror. The horror of the death he's going to face. Grips his soul. But it does not remove his determination to go to Calvary. Like a flint he set his face to Jerusalem. He set his face to the cross. Paul writes in Hebrews in chapter 10 verse 7 these words. Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written to me. To do thy will, O God. I am come to do thy will. There is a commitment of heart and mind and soul in the Lord Jesus Christ to stand as a substitute for sinners. He will do so. Nothing will stop that. Nothing would hinder that. But still the horror of that death grips his soul and he is indeed troubled. And therefore when we read the wording of John 12 in verse 27, we see how it is translated perfectly for us. Our Lord did not ask to be freed from dying, but to be saved from the power of death. His prayer was based upon the promise that the Father had already made to him that he would not be bound by death, nor would he experience the corruption of death. His Father promised him, you will die, but you will not see corruption. This is confirmed in the Scriptures, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, and in verse 27. Go with me over there. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Peter is preaching. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death. Having loosed the pains of death, because... It was not possible that he should be holden to it, of it. It was not possible that death should lay hold on him and keep its grip on him. Now read verse 27. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to seek corruption. The apostles preached the same thing that they understood from our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, I will die. Yes, I will die as a substitute for sinners. But I will not be left into the grips of death. I will not be left in that grave. In three days, I will rise again. The apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13 confirms this same truth. Acts 13, 35 through 37 Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on, a, on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But verse 37... Acts thirteen thirty seven, But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. John 12 and verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. And then the next words out of our Lord's mouth in verse 28 is. Father, glorify thy name. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it. Father, glorify thy name. Now is my soul troubled. What am I going to ask? To, to, To escape this? No, I cannot ask that. What am I going to ask? Father, glorify thy name. This statement is made immediately after he submitted himself yet again and afresh unto his Father's will concerning his death. He fully submitted to the Father's will to suffer that death which was necessary for his people, whatever that may bring, and doing that so his Father would be glorified. Present tense. He says, Father, glorify thy name. Present tense. He is asking God to be glorified right now in this moment with my submission to your will. And a response comes from heaven. And the voice of God is heard. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The father responds to his son immediately. But with the past tense and with the future tense. Jesus is speaking, right now, Father, I want you to glorify yourself. And the Father speaks up and says, I have already done it. And I'll do it again and again and again. Future tense. His Father responds, I have and I will. So this raises a question for us. How is it that the Father is glorified? By the submission and sacrificial death of His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there are six things I want to make statements to that answer. First, He is glorified in the very submission of the Son of God to His Father to to commit Himself to that everlasting covenant to save His people from their sins. He is glorified. The Father is glorified because of the Son's commitment to this. Secondly, The Father is glorified by accepting the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of those for whom he died. He offers himself to die. He goes to Calvary's cross, as we will see in a few chapters, and he dies. Is God satisfied? Will God accept that? And the answer is yes. And God is glorified by what he does at the cross. Thirdly, God is glorified by raising his only begotten son from the grave to show that he is fully God and fully man at the same time. To show that death has no grip on him, that corruption cannot touch him and the grave has no power over him and that he has defeated sin and Satan and the grave and the world. And that is our hope, my brethren. We lie in the grave. One day we will all lie in the grave unless the Lord Jesus Christ comes for us. And we lie there asleep, our soul dwelling in the presence of God in glory. And our hope is that Jesus Christ will raise us from the grave. As he rose himself from the grave. There is... No gospel preaching without preaching that he died for the sinner in the sinner's place. But there is also no gospel preaching without preaching that he rose after three days. That he would raise you up out of the grave too. Next, he is glorified. Our Father is glorified by giving the Lord Jesus Christ a name that is above every name. In the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Jesus Christ earned a name in glory that is above every name. He is honored. In glory above all. And finally. Our, Lord, our Father is glorified. In what the Lord Jesus Christ did. And has done. By placing him on the throne in glory. Jesus Christ raised from the grave. Ascended up to glory. And sat on a throne for the glory of God the Father. I have glorified it. I will glorify it. Verse 29 and 30, the people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spoke to him and Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. First, we look at the fact that the people heard the the voice and said, it's thundering. Others said, no, 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 it wasn't thunder. It was a it was an angel. What does this teach us? This is more evidence set before us in this verse that the natural man cannot understand the things of God. God spoke from heaven. And some people heard a thunder. Other people said, no, no, that's a, that must be an angel talk, talking. And what we have staring us in the face in that statement is... That the natural man cannot receive the things of God. Jesus Christ had already dealt with this among the Jews. And in John 8, in verse 43, he said, Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? Now, they could hear it physically, but they could not hear with the heart. They could not hear with the soul. They could not hear it with their spirits. And Paul confirms this doctrine in 1 Corinthians 2.14, where he says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. There is people in that that crowd around the Lord Jesus Christ that day that heard something and, and swore that it was thunder. And others saying, no, it's, it's got to be angels. And they couldn't hear that it was the voice of God. But there's more truth here than that. Because they were not the only ones there. And the second truth I want to bring out this morning in that text is this. Some in the crowd are true believers. They did not hear the voice of the Father either. What are you saying, Brother Pat? What I'm saying is, some true Christians, some who are truly Christians, cannot hear some of the things of God in their particular place in life. Where they're at at this moment. They're true Christians, but they just, they can't hear, they can't understand what's going on right now at this time. We've already seen this in the scriptures. Luke 9 and verse 45. But they understood not the saying. This is the 12. And it was hid from them. And they perceived it not. And they feared to ask him of that saying. They they didn't understand it. God was hiding it from them at that moment. But then we read John chapter 2 and verse 22. John 2 and verse 22. And the scripture tells us when therefore he was risen from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. And they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had said. There are times when a true Christian cannot hear and cannot understand what God is saying in his word. That doesn't mean that they're not a Christian there will be a time when they will understand because God has purposed to teach each one of his children. But in this crowd, that day when God spoke from heaven, there are some who are lost. The natural man cannot hear the things of God. But there are some who are genuine Christians, still bound up with ideas and things that cause them not to be able to hear what God has to say. And then there's a third group here. And that is that some Christians, in light of that second one, that some Christians understand more than others because God has taught them more than he has taught others. We see this in the scriptures. The principle is found in Matthew 25, 15. Matthew 25, 15 says, unto one he gave five talents, to another two And to another, one. To every man according to his several ability. He gives some five, some two, and some one. Who is the one giving? Well, it's God giving. Why does he give one five and another two? That's God's business, not mine. But the fact is, some people have more in the realm of Christianity than others. doesn't mean they're not Christians. Just like the parable that says of a tree that comes up, some produce 30, then 60, and then 100 fold. This is true Christianity, but some only produce 30, and some only produce 60, but some 100. This is true Christianity. These are not people who are lost. God gives people different abilities. I got a library full of books of men that understand far more than I do in some areas, and yet I understand more than they do in some areas. You say, Brother Pat, that's boasting. No, I understand the doctrine of believer's baptism, and they understand infant baptism, and I don't understand why they believe infant baptism. I mean, I understand how they got to it from their own words, but when I look at the scriptures, I don't understand. And yet they know some things that I don't. In some areas. Romans 12 and verse 6 having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given unto us, whether prophesy, prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. As God distributes grace and faith, God gives some more faith. George Mueller, if you've never read his story, please do. I encourage you to do so. A man of faith. And I think to myself sometimes that I have touched the hem of his garment in the realm of faith. but I have not attained to that realm of being able to trust God like he has. I can testify that I have seen things that others haven't. But I can also testify that I have not seen things that others have in this realm of faith. It is according to the proportion of faith. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou hast not received? This is true in the physical realm. Look around you this morning. Who makes us different? Why is there male and female and no other? Why are there children and all kinds of different sizes of people in this room? God makes us different. God has made us unique, fearfully and wonderfully made. God has made you different. And different is not bad, it's just different. In fact, every one of us is peculiarly blessed of God to be made in the way that God has made us. But in the spiritual realm, it is also true. And in fact, it is the spiritual realm that the Apostle Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians 4. Who makes you different? Why do you have a gift and he doesn't? Why can you do this and he can't? Why does he know this and you don't? Who makes you different? And if you have received something that has made you different than your brothers or sister, how can you boast and look at them? Well, they don't have this or they can't do... How can you boast and pretend that you're something... When in fact, you have simply received something from God. And finally, in Ephesians 3 and verse 5, the fourth witness to this truth is this. Ephesians 3, 5, the Apostle Paul, speaking of that which he knows and understands, says, Ephesians 3, 5, which, speaking of other men, in other ages... Speaking of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Do you know there's some men back here, great men of faith, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, those men, Hosea, Micah, Moses. Great men who didn't understand what Paul and Peter and James and Thomas understood, what we understand sitting here this morning, they did not know and understand the gospel in the same manner as we do. Jesus answered and said to those who said, I think it's thunder. No, I think it's an angel. Jesus answered and said to them, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now, this is the third time our Father has spoken publicly so that a multitude could hear His own voice concerning His Son to confirm that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. It's the third time. Remember the first time, children? At His baptism. At His baptism in Matthew 3 and verse 17, lo, a voice from heaven saying, there came a lower voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God testifying that this one that has just been baptized by John in the river Jordan and the heavens are open and the dove ascending upon him, this is the very Son of God. Later, as he took his disciples up to the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17 and verse 5, God spoke again. And says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him, hear ye him. Peter said, we ought to listen to Moses and to the prophets, to Elijah. Let's build three temple tabernacles here. We got Jesus and Moses and the prophets. No, God said, no. You listen to my son. And this is the third time. Just days before Christ is crucified. I have glorified it and will glorify again, the Father said. But this is for your sakes, Jesus Christ said. Now, I thought about that this week, and I couldn't grasp it, and I was praying because I read the commentaries, yes, that's there, but there was something missing. Some of them didn't even deal with the phrase, this is for your sakes. And I wanted to, and I was thinking and meditating, and I was praying, God, what is it about that statement that you're saying? And I have some thoughts I want to deal with you. Give you. Uh, this morning. Concerning that. First. Despite there being a crowd of people. Who are rejecting. The Lord Jesus Christ. And despite. There being some believers who did not understand the voice of God. 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 Testify to his own glory anyway. That's the first truth I want us to get. It was for your sake that God would testify to his own glory anyway. It was for your sake that God would open his mouth and say something. And that kind of all blends together in the next two statements. I began to think about... That which testifies to the glory of God this week. I began to meditate on the verses that I knew and sort of put things together. First, I wanted to say to you this morning, or second, I wanted to say to you this morning, the heavens declare the glory of God, and they do so for God's glory. The scriptures declare the glory of God, and they do so for God's glory. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the, which is the context of the words being spoken... Declare the glory of God and they do so for God's glory. And that is one great truth. But the other great truth is this. The heavens declare the glory of God for our sakes. The whole of creation is crying into the ears of God's creation. There is a God. Read Psalm 19, the first verses. There is a God. There is a God. There is a God. The creation cries out. God is in this. And he does it for your sake. To let you know. That there is a God. The scriptures. Declare the glory of God and he does it for your sake. Do you realize, and maybe you don't this morning, that without the written word of God, without God opening his mouth and speaking words and men writing them down and God preserving them for us, we would not know who God is. We would not know anything about redemption. We know anything about salvation. We know about creation because the heavens declare the glory of God for our sakes. But God gave us his word for our sake so that we could open up the word of God and read for ourselves to find out for ourselves what God has to say about himself and about us and about salvation. And then the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ declares the glory of God for our sake. God sent his son for us. He died for our sakes. It speaks to us. He was buried for our sakes. He rose for our sakes. He ascended for our sakes and took his place on the throne of heaven for our sakes and stands as God's king and priest and prophet and intercedes for us from heaven to see that God would secure us and save us and bring us all the way. The scripture says, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now, he says, is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Now is my soul troubled. Now the world is judged. Now the prince of this world is cast out. Now! in that which is going to be developing in this hour, in this time frame that leads to Calvary and my death and burial and resurrection, these things are going to take place. The judgment of the world. What is God's judgment? God's judgment is his verification of the moral condition of those who are judged. God says, this man is righteous and justified. That's God's judgment about him. God has verified what God sees in that man. And that man is ushered into glory. God's judgment is here. This man is a sinner who did not repent. He would not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. His judgment is his own sin upon him and my judgment on that sin. That's God's judgment. God, in His judgment, verifies the moral condition of the one that He judges. This man is righteous and just. This man is unrighteous and unjust and deserves punishment for his sin. Now is the judgment of the world, both Jew and Gentile. In this going to the cross, in this hour that has now come... Is the judgment of the world. In this case both Jew and Gentile were both involved in the rejection of Jesus Christ. And in the death of Jesus Christ. And both are morally guilty in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This the apostles confirmed throughout their preaching. I don't know if you realize it or not. But the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ has two purposes. Well, you say, what is that? Well, I know one, it is to save sinners from their sins. Yes, when Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again and to save sinners from their sins. And when Jesus Christ is trusted for what he accomplished on the cross. God's judgment of Jesus Christ and God's judgment of the gospel message is brought forth in life. What Jesus Christ accomplished produces life. But there's something else that happens when the gospel is preached. When people look at the scriptures and see the gospel. When Jesus Christ is rejected. Despite what he's accomplished at the cross. It produces that everlasting damnation and the second death in the lake of fire. That will be God's judgment also from the gospel. Most look at the cross and see salvation. Few look at the cross and see the judgment of God coming upon sinners. Who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. But we see this in the scriptures. Quickly, 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 15 and 16. For we are unto God a sweet Savior of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. God looks about what we do in the preaching of the gospel as a sweet savor. It produces salvation in some, but it results in the perishing of others. And God approves. To the one, we are a savor of death unto death. To the other, a savor of life unto life. And then Paul adds these words, and who is sufficient for these things? And I have often contemplated those words. How can I preach a message that I know will save sinners. Well, there's a joy in that. But how can I preach the same message that I know is going to produce death in sinners? Am I sufficient for that kind of preaching? And sometimes I confess that I fail in that. Oh God, do I need to stand one more time before sinners and preach? Knowing that if they reject, It'll be a savor in your nostrils unto death for them. Paul speaks of it in Acts chapter 13, verses 45 through 48. Acts 13, 45, When the Jews saw the multitudes, that is the multitudes of of Gentiles, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul. They spake against the gospel message which Paul spoke, contradicting it, blaspheming against it, Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first be spoken unto you, speaking to the Jews, but seeing you put it from you and judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set set thee to be a light to the Gentiles that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And the Gentiles, when they heard this, they were glad. And they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Now is the world judged. By what I am going to do, the world is going to be judged. Some will be judged righteous and saved. Some will be judged unrighteous because they reject what I'm doing and be lost. But now also the prince of this world is cast out. Cast out the prince of the world first. Who is the prince of the world? Gill says he is called by this name because he has he has no legal power or authority of the world, but because he has usurped a, a dominion over it, and in his great power and efficacy in the hearts of the children of disobedience, he's called their prince, who yield a voluntary subjection to him, who is Satan as if he was their proper Lord and Sovereign. Now the time was at hand, Gill continues, when he would be cast out of the empire of the world, be put away out of the temples of the Gentiles and out of the hearts of God's elect. The phrase prince of the world refers to Satan. Now Satan is going to be cast out. I... Don't have enough time to open up all that I want to say about that. I'll come back to that at another time because I want to deal with him being cast out of heaven as well as cast out of the world. Cast out. The Greek is gradually cast out. It's not instantaneous. He is cast out. It speaks of the gradual casting out of Satan and his power being broken, by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the gradual conversion of unbelievers to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it continues in this day and will continue to the end. As Satan's kingdom is being robbed by those who believe the gospel of the grace of God. The effects of gospel preaching described in Acts 26, 18 is that it is to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan onto God. That's gospel. That's the purpose of it. Turn them to God from Satan. And Paul in Colossians speaks of in Colossians chapter 1. About God's work in taking us out of the kingdom of darkness. And putting us in the kingdom of the son of God. Out of that into this. As his kingdom is being broken. And he is being cast out gradually out of the world. As more and more Sinners come to faith in Jesus Christ. No wonder he is angry. No wonder at the end when he gathers the armies he's going to destroy, wants to destroy. That which belongs to God. But he cannot. Because he's being cast out. And will be forever cast into the lake of fire. And then Christ closes this text with these words. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This said he, signifying what death he should die. The phrase lifted up means to be lifted up between heaven and earth. And it's a reference to the cross, but not only the cross. Verse 32 confirms the casting out of Satan involves the gradual diminishing of his power over mankind through the victory won at Calvary's cross over the world, over Satan, by the Lord Jesus Christ dying in their place. Lifting up involves several things. It involves our Lord be lifted up on Calvary's cross. That it does indeed. He's already spoken of it. John 3, 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Moses lifted up the serpent on a pole for all to see. God lifted his Son up on Calvary's cross for all to look upon and to see that they can be saved from him. It involves that. But it involves much more. It involves our Lord being lifted up from the grave through the resurrection three days later. It involves our Lord being lifted up on his ascension from earth into heaven. And it involves our Lord being lifted up, because the word means exalted, may also mean exalted, lifted up and placed upon a throne, highly exalted above all in heaven. Christ lifted up on that cross, dying for sinners in their place. Christ buried and lifted up in the resurrection, spending time on earth to prove, I have raised from the dead. You go and tell people about that. And then Christ ascending up into glory and taking his place on his throne. I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men onto me. I will be drawn I will be drawing all men onto myself. The disciples preached this. Peter, Acts 2, 33, Therefore, being by the right hand of God, exalted. There's our word. lifted up. At the day of Pentecost, Peter preached. Our Lord was exalted to the right hand of, our, of his father. Acts chapter 5. Verse 30 and 31. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, that's the resurrection, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be prince and a savior. There's that high exaltation again. Exalted, lifted up. Once raised from earth to heaven, our Lord will draw sinners out of every kindred and tongue and people unto himself. He will draw them out of darkness into light. He will draw them out of death into life. He will draw them from condemnation to justification. So that they are no longer condemned. No longer suffering under the wrath of God. He will draw them from mortality. Being able to die. To immortality. Living forever. He will draw them from corruption. This body is dying. It is corrupting. And when it lies in a grave it will be corrupt. And from that, he will draw draw them out of that corruption into incorruption. So they cannot be corrupted again, ever. He will draw them from dishonor. This body has been dishonored by sin. God created it holy. God created it perfect. And sin entered. And this body has been dishonored. And he will draw them from dishonor all the way to glory. Will you be among that number? Will you believe the gospel message? Will you, from your heart, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to, to, to draw you up into glory with Himself? To save you from your sins so that you're accepted before God? Forgiven? Forgiven? Or will you be among those who reject him and suffer the judgment of God against yourself? Let not be said of me that I did not say to you and warn you, flee from the wrath of God which is to come. And let it not be said of you that you turn a deaf ear to the voice of God. When in the very word of God he says, if you will come to him, he will not cast you out. Let's pray together.